It is that time now once again For getting lumped up with my friends It's rock a mic And Rob that you should know And you'll find them here on the rock show people and welcome to another show the rock show episode 149 jesus christ 149 of these can you believe it mike yeah man unbelievable and we're hitting next, next episode is 150 mm -hmm. um so who do we have today who are we uh talking well this about is today? this is for uh black history month okay we always celebrate that since we've been doing the podcast yeah. uh the contribution of, of African-Americans in, in music, especially rock music and jazz is just, you know, you can't, you can't deny any of that. So I like to celebrate some stuff that maybe people haven't heard about. And we've, we've done good the last couple of Februaries, but this, yeah. uh, this week we've got Sun Ra. Okay. Sun Ra, now, what a name. What a character. Yeah. yeah. Sun Ra was, was out there. Okay. But he, was very influential to a lot of rock musicians as well. And it's kind of like, you know, people admitted it, but it's kind of like not as well known. Okay. Um, in, in the late sixties, you had this kind of like convergence of rock music and jazz. And uh, it, 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 it's really never been duplicated. I think at any other time in history, but uh, you know, you have like this, Bands like that were coming up, like the MC5 and the Stooges, very heavy, somewhat psychedelic influenced, but not, you know, more just like heavy proto-punk kind of stuff, uh, being influenced by Sun Ra and a lot of free jazz. Yeah, they it's call it Afro... Afrofuturism? Yeah, Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism. Like, <laughs> Actually, I'll just mention it quick that... Uh, this month being February, uh, there is something at Carnegie Hall. It might even be right as we're talking. Uh, you'd have to look it up online. Uh, Afrofuturism, there's a whole like week or two of it going on at Carnegie Hall. Uh, it's the Sun Ra or Orchestra. It's not orchestra, it's orchestra. Okay. Yeah. It is playing in February. So uh, if you see this show and you want to check them out, they're, they're probably either just played or about to play. Um, it's Afrofuturism is kind of like this mix of black culture or even, you know, straight up African culture and technology. And in Sun Ra's time, his, you know, his peak time was the 60s and 70s. Uh, it, it was almost like the space age kind of stuff and a little bit of sci-fi thrown in there. Okay. Yeah, he was Sun Ra, Sun Ra, Sun Ra would wear like, you know, the whole orchestra would wear ancient Egyptian based outfits. He dressed like a pharaoh, okay? Uh, you know, the, the 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 music was just like if you if you can make if you can make jazz like 3D chess, that was his that was his jazz. The kind of jazz he made, it was way complicated. But he was loved by a lot of rock musicians. Uh, he opened for a lot of bands in the in the sixties and seventies. Uh, even in the uh, in the early nineties, uh, before he passed away, he opened up for Sonic Youth. They toured together. So there's a lot of a lot of people he influenced. Um, and I'll just you know like like you can even see like Afrofuturism bands like um, uh, Funkadelic Parliament. Okay, George Clinton. All right, yeah. his his crazy outfits were kind of based on this Afrofuturism. Uh, Miles yeah, Davis a, a bit, especially on his album covers. Yeah, uh, but I gotta tell you, this guy, this guy was a fucking space cadet, dude. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, him, it's a fascinating. No, it's a fascinating story, though. I, I'm anxious <laughs> to tell his story because he really was a <laughs> he was a musical prodigy, even though being a space spacehead man. That was a space cadet, man. Yeah, he yeah. Beautiful music, but he was out there, man. Yeah, but you know, he influenced people like uh, uh, Africa Bombada. Oh yeah, yeah. Sure, if you sure. remember him. 
and even today, like uh, modern day stuff that would be considered kind of like descendant of Sun Ra in some ways would be like Missy Elliott and and even yeah. Eric Badu. You know. Um, all right, so let's let's just get into it. I mean, it's a, it's a long story. Uh, Sun Ra was born Herman Poole Blount on it's May. May 22nd, 1914. Uh, he was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, his mother named him after a, a very popular black magician, okay, named Black Herman, okay? So the Herman comes from Black Herman. Uh, and she was very impressed by this guy, so she said, I'll name my kid after him. Now, as a kid, he was nicknamed Sonny. I think through his whole life, his family pretty much called him that. Uh, he had an older sister and a half brother and was often kind of spoiled. He was treated, you know, they doted over him a little bit being the youngest. Um, now for decades, many decades, very little was known about Sun Ra's early life, but there was, um, and, and he contributed to that in a lot of ways in interviews. He would give a lot of contradictory information about his life uh, you know, he'd say one thing in one interview and something totally different in another, uh, even about where he was from and how old he was and things like that. Now, um, he was kind of what you would call a, a self-invented person. All right. You know, he just, you know, made up his own background to, to just kind of advance what he was doing. OK. And uh, he often denied his birth name. OK. Uh, as he got older, he didn't like the blount name anymore i'll go into that uh and sometimes he used to say that he was related to elijah pool okay because his middle name was pool yeah. uh, and elijah pool was was later known as elijah muhammad the uh the, the leader of the um the nation of islam okay uh often he lied about his birth date like i said um and there was an author named uh, John F. Zwed, who wrote kind of what's considered to be the authority book, you know, on Sun Ra, okay, um, came out in 2000. It's called Sun Ra Spaces the Place, the Lives and Times of Sun Ra. That's, a, that's the book you want to read if you're interested in his life. Now, as a child, the young Herman Blount became a very skilled pianist. By the age of 12, he was composing and sight reading music. Okay. That's impressive. Yeah. Now, for those who don't know what sight reading is, that's basically somebody putting, if you're in a, on a piano, somebody putting uh, sheet music with notes on it in front of you and you've never played it before and you can just play it. Wow. Yeah. And he was doing that at 12. So he's a, you know, musical, musical genius. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, um, at the time, Birmingham, Alabama, where he was living, was an important stop for a lot of touring musicians. Uh, it was part of the Chitlin circuit. We've talked about that a few times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so all the all the jazz, black jazz musicians and, and others went through Birmingham. Uh, people like Fletcher Henderson, who he would work with later on, Duke Ellington and Fats Waller were all kind of like guys that he saw at a very young age and made a big impression on him. Now, in his teenage years, Blount demonstrated this kind of prodigy-type behavior. He often went to a lot of big band shows, performances, and then he would be able to go home and write up full transcripts of what he heard. Wow. Okay, he could write the music out on paper by memory, okay, you know, it's not like he was listening to a record. He actually remembered how they played it. Okay. So he kind of remembered notes and stuff. Notes, and yeah. I, I don't. I, I've, I've never heard of anybody being able to do that. I'm sure there are there people, but that's, that's just impressive. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Now he attended the segregated because it was those days, uh, industrial high school, and he studied music under a teacher named John T. Uh, his nickname was Fess Watley. Now, Watley was a very demanding guy uh, of his students. He, he was very disciplined, but he was very well respected. And uh, over the years, like there were a lot of people that came out of his classes that went on to 
bigger and better things. Um, now, Sun Ra was deeply religious, but his family was not really formally associated with any kind of church. Okay, they were very spiritual people. Uh, I think they had a lot of different I ideas. They were, they were Christian, but they didn't belong to a Baptist church or you know anything like that. Um, Blount was a bit of a loner. He kind of kept to himself, uh, but he was always remembered as a kind-hearted kid, a nice kid, an approachable kid, uh, and he was a voracious reader. All right, he read constantly. Now he would often be found at the Black Masonic Lodge. Okay, which was one of the few places in Birmingham which was segregated at the time that black people could read things for, you know, unlimited amount of time. Uh, the, the lodge would let you take books out and stuff like that, almost like a library. Okay, but um, he read a lot of books about uh, Freemasonry. Obviously, it was a Masonic lodge. And he also read about a lot of esoteric subjects. He read about the Bible. He read about history a lot of uh, esoteric philosophies, things like that. Now, sadly, uh, by his teens, he suffered from something called cryptochidism. Cryptochidism. Now, what is that? Have you ever heard of that, Rob? No, I never heard of that. Uh, it's not pleasant. It's when, you know, when you're a baby, male, a male baby, you, you, your testicles descend out of your body into your scrotum. Okay? His didn't do that. Okay, and it's natural to do that. Okay, but if you if it doesn't happen, your testicles stay inside, and it can create a lot of pain at times. Okay, so he had this for his whole life. All right, and it it caused a lot of discomfort for him at times, and uh, he was also very embarrassed of it. It was something that you know he didn't like to talk about, but uh, it kind of made him be a little bit isolated. He kind of stayed away from people, especially when he wasn't feeling well. Okay. So by 1934, uh, Blount was offered a full-time musical job by Ethel Harper, who was his biology teacher in high school. Yeah. Um, yeah um, she had organized a band to pursue a career as a singer. And he joined the musician's trade union right away. And toured with Harper's group through the Southeast and toured uh, the Midwest as well. Now, Harper, during this tour, decided to leave the band for a singing career up in New York City. Uh, she ended up in a somewhat successful singing group at the time called the Ginger Snaps. Okay. Uh, now, Blount took over the orchestra. He became the band leader when she left. Wow. And he renamed it the Sonny Blount Orchestra. And they continued touring for a few months under that name uh, before breaking up. Basically, they broke up over financial issues. But even though they did break up, they it wasn't just over finances. Uh, I, I'm sorry, it wasn't. I should say that it, the, the finances were the problem. But what happened was they were very popular. Okay, they started to get a lot of popularity, but just not enough to keep it together. Yeah. And, you know, afterward, when he got back from Birmingham, based on the fact that he had this this lineup, he, he started to get regular uh, work as a musician. Okay. Now, Birmingham, Alabama clubs would often feature like very exotic sets, uh, a lot of vivid lighting and background murals at these clubs. And they would feature kind of like tropical or oasis themes in the back. The band would play in front of that. And uh, this would be uh, uh, influential for him for him later. He was known for having some crazy sets on stage and stuff like that. So he, he was taking all this in. And later when he did become Sun Ra, it would all, it would all come out. You'd see it. Um, big bands in those days uh, would give black people a sense of pride. Uh, it was something that everybody liked. Um, they were very well respected in the community if you were in a band. Uh, and even though the South was segregated, um, a lot of the black big bands did have access to white audiences and they were asked to play to them. Uh, yeah, the white elite. The, elite. the, white, the white elites. Yeah, 
you know, and they, they, they enjoyed the music and, and they would, they would go see them play or invite them to play at their locations, even though it was a segregated South. Um, in 1936, but, but that tell you how much people want a musical, love musical, like the music well, that was being played. I mean, is is it music what's supposed to unite everybody? Yeah, you know what's the funny thing about this guy? He always worked in the music industry from a child to to the, almost to the day he died. It's all he ever did. It seems it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was just so talented; he could find work no yeah. matter where, he, and he moved a few times too. So yeah. you know, he got no matter where he went. So um, in 1936, with the help of his old music teacher, Fess Watley, uh, Blount was awarded a scholarship at the Alabama Agricultural and Mechanical University. Uh, he was a music education major. They had a good program there. And he was studying composition, orchestration, and basic music theory. Um, he dropped out after a year, though. Okay. He probably knew better than the teacher. He already well, had a he had it, it. It's it's more than that. It's more than that. Now he left the school because he claimed he had a visionary experience. Rob, all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what what while in college, yeah. um, he 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 was in deep religious meditation. That's the way he described it, and he says, and I'm gonna. It's a quote from him. He says that my whole body changed into something else. I could see through myself, and I went up. I wasn't in human form. I landed on a planet that I identified as Saturn. They teleported me, and I was down on a stage with them. They wanted to talk to me. They had one little antenna on each ear, a little antenna over each eye, and they talked to me. They told me to stop attending college because there was going to be great trouble in the schools. The world was going into complete chaos. I would speak through music and the world would listen. That's what they told me. Okay. So he, you know, said this happened about 1936, 1937. And according to that biographer I mentioned, Zwed, um, he could never really verify this whole thing. Okay. But it's, it's a story that, that Sun Ra told over and over. Um, Zwed's re research says that it may have actually happened as late as 1952, based on accounts of friends and bandmates. But uh, this was a story that Sun Ra told many times over the years. And he sometimes said the story happened in Chicago. Either way, the story happened prior to popular stories about UFOs. Okay, so he was talking about this before we started hearing about UFOs after the war and about people being abducted by aliens and stuff like that. He was talking about that. Okay, that that happened to him. So it's nobody really knows. Okay, it's just a story that Sun Ra told and he changed it a few times, but something happened to him. Okay, because his whole philosophy, his life philosophy changed after that. Yeah. Okay. Now, after leaving the school, Blount became known as a uh, very serious musician in Birmingham. He rarely slept. Okay, he, he never after that that event or leaving the school because of that event, he he never slept anymore. Like he would just catnap for the rest of his life, and he yeah. cited people like Thomas Edison, Napoleon, or, or Da Vinci. As, as people that used to do this that were great geniuses. Thomas Edison was known to never sleep, too. You know, they have you just a little two, three hours at a time, and that would be it. Um, he transformed the first floor of his family's home into a, a conservatory workshop where he wrote songs and transcribed readings. Uh, he rehearsed with the many musicians that would drift in and out, okay, and they often discussed, you know, it wasn't just music. They discussed biblical, esoteric yeah. concepts all the time. Anybody that would kind of listen to him, he would he would have a conversation with about these things. Okay. Now, Blount became a regular at the Forbes Piano Company, which was actually a white-owned business in Birmingham. Uh, wow. he, he showed up daily to play music just in the store. Okay. And he would swap ideas with the staff, which was white, okay? 
And uh, he copied, they let him copy sheet music all the time into his notebook. Okay. And based on, you know, this, this discipline that he's, he's attained, uh, he decided to form a new band and he learned under Fess Watley basically to have this kind of like daily rigorous routine. Uh, you know, he would call practices at three o'clock in the morning if he if he wanted to. Okay. Because he didn't sleep. <laughs> well, he didn't sleep right. And if you know, a, a lot of you know, later on the band, the orchestra would would live communally with him. They would all live together. Okay. And that helped with you had to basically be on call for sunrise any time of day. And if you were home there with him, it was easier. So that's what the That's incredible. Yeah, the band members had to devote their entire lives to him. That's that's the only way it could work to play with this guy. But they did it. See, that's what's amazing is is if you look on uh if you look on Wikipedia at the amount of people that was in and out of this 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 band, I mean, you know, it's like a hundred people. Wow. Okay. In and out of in and out of the band. I'm sure it's probably not even complete, okay, the list. So um in October of 1942, Blount got his draft notice. Okay, this was uh, almost a year into the Second World War. Now, he, he quickly declared himself a conscientious objector. Uh, he cited religious objections to the war and killing. He, he wasn't going to do it. His great aunt, Ida, was somebody that he had to take care of. Okay, and... Uh, he had he had a hernia that was not repaired. It was a chronic problem for him. Okay, so he cited to the draft board these three things as a reason not to go, and the draft board refused his claim. So he complained right away that you know there were no black men on the uh, on the draft board, and that that you know was discriminatory. So um, uh, then what happened was his family kind of disowned him in some ways, some members of his family. They kind of, you know, stayed clear of him. They were embarrassed that he didn't want to go to the war. You know, if you were considered like 4F, okay, which was the status, it was a bit of an embarrassment. You know, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you, uh, why aren't you overseas fighting? Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys, you know, you hear a lot of stories, a lot of guys, um, fighting in the in the fronts uh, in in you know in Europe or even in uh, in Japan you know fighting in the Pacific, um, the enemy would you know the Germans and the Japanese would use like psychological warfare against them and and have like loudspeakers you know and they have somebody talking to them and sometimes yeah, they used to, that movie you told me about that movie that they were doing that yeah they, they, you see you see it in some movies even in the korean war they did that uh in the vietnam war too but but what i'm saying is what these people would do is they would tell the our armed servicemen that the 4f guys were banging their wives back home <laughs> so it was not it was not a good thing it was not a good thing to be not in the war you know yeah but he was dead set against it. Um, he was supposed to go for what was called alternative service. Um, there was a civilian public service camp in Pennsylvania that he was ordered to report to, to do like forestry work and stuff like that. But he never showed up. He didn't do it. So on December 8th, 1942, he got arrested in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Uh, he was supposed to be in Pennsylvania and they picked him up there. So, he gets to court and he said that he told the judge that alternative service was unacceptable. And he debated the judge on points of law. He, he had a, a big debate with the judge. He defended himself. Okay. Wow. And he uh, was using like biblical interpretations and other things in the law, in the, the, you know, in the law books. And he basically said, you know, alternative service is bullshit. You know, it's, I'm not doing it. So they, the judge ruled that he was violating the law and was at risk of being actually drafted by the military with, and you know, if you're at this situation and they send you to the army, you're just going to be washing bathrooms somewhere. You know, it's like awful. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, he said that this is what he said. Okay. 
when the judge told him that he's at risk of being drafted, he said that if he would he if he got inducted into the military, drafted, he would use military weapons and training and kill the first high ranking officer he saw. <laughs> That's the way to get out of it. Yeah. So the judge, the judge sentenced him to jail. Okay. And then said the, the quote was, I've never seen a nigger like you before. Okay. And Blount replied, Nope, and you never will again. So in January of 1943, Blount was in jail. Okay. Yeah. He was in the in the Walker County jail in Jasper, Alabama. He wrote the U.S. Marshal Service from the jail, he wrote them a letter, and he said he was facing a nervous breakdown, uh, you know, from all the stress of being in jail. He said he was feeling suicidal and he was afraid of being sexually assaulted in jail. OK, so what they did was they gave him the conscientious objector status and they sent him to the Pennsylvania camp that he was supposed to go to to do the forestry work that he was supposed to do that he didn't show up. So he went to do that. Okay. And, uh, what they did for him is they, they assigned him forestry duty, cleaning up the parks, forests, stuff like that. And then at night he was allowed to play piano. Okay. Now he was psychiatric. Uh, he was getting psychiatrically evaluated at this time. And, yeah, you know, the, the, the therapists, the therapists were saying that he's a psychopath. OK, and that he's like sexually perverted. But <laughs> but he's also they, they said, but he's also a well-educated, colored individual as well. They use that term. So I don't I don't know what that was all about. But, <laughs> but <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Now, in, uh, in March of 43, the draft board reclassified him as 4F, and that was because of his hernia, and he returned back to Birmingham. Now, he, at this time, he was, he was changed through this experience. He was embittered. He was angry uh, about this whole ordeal. He started a new band right away and was playing again professionally, getting paid. Now, after... Uh, after his great aunt Ida, Ida died, okay, shortly after that, um, he felt there was no reason to stay in Birmingham anymore. So he dissolved the band that he had and he moved up to Chicago, and which was basically, you know, this was right around the end of the war, right after the war. And yeah. he, he was following in the footsteps of, you know, how many people we talked about that did this, came from the South, Went up and to Bernie. Chicago, Howlin' Wolf, and, you know, all yeah. these guys, you know, uh, Muddy Waters and all, you know, all these guys did that. Okay. Uh, now in Chicago, Blount was very, uh, very easy to find work. Okay. Uh, there was a big music scene there going on, blues, jazz, all that stuff. And uh, he found work with a blues singer named Wyoni Harris. Okay. Now, Weoni Harris made his recording debut with Sun Ra, okay, on two 1946 singles. One was called Dig This Boogie, with the B-side being Lightning Struck the Poor House, and another song called <laughs> My, ba My Baby's Barrel House, both with on the, uh, backed with on the other side of Drinking By Myself, okay? So... He, these were the first two singles. Now, these were like uh, jazzy, short songs, you know, two-and-a-half-minute singles, R&B-ish uh, yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and it, it, it was really that, that first single featured Sun Ra, still known as Blount, okay, his first recorded piano solo, okay? And uh, it also... Um, what he used to do in his free time as well around then was he would play like bump and grind music with his band at strip clubs. Okay. Make a little extra money with that. <laughs> <laughs> what a career, man. Yeah. It's, it ain't over yet, man. It ain't over yet. Now in August of 46, Blount earned a lengthy engagement at the club Delisa 
under band leader and composer Fletcher Henderson, who had, he had been very influenced by. Um, now, at the meeting of the two, when these two guys met, uh, Henderson was really kind of past his prime. He had been in a severe car accident. He didn't play as much as he used to. Uh, he had a lot of injuries related to that accident that prevented him from playing regularly. But his band was kind of like a little in, uh, unstable because of that. Um, he, he wasn't able to keep, you know, high-rated musicians in in it. So he kind of had second-rate guys in the band. Um, but Blount was hired as a pianist and an arranger. Now, his compositions and arrangements showed now a degree of bebop influence, very early bebop. He was kind of right there in that. Now, when you think of bebop, you think of Charlie Parker, okay, yeah. stuff like that. And, 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 but Sun Ra was kind of right in that too at the time, okay, a little, little lesser known. Um, but in 48, Blount performed briefly in a trio with saxophonist Coleman Hawkins and violinist Stuff Smith. Both were popular Chicago musicians. Now, there's no known recordings of this trio, but a home recording surfaced of Blount and Smith duetting from 1953. Um, and that appears on a compilation called Stan Sun Pleasure. And it was one of the Sun Ra's final recordings in 1992 that uh, uh, Stuff Smith played on. Okay. And also, uh, there was the, the violinist Billy Bang's tribute to Stuff Smith, Sun Ra played on. Okay. Now, while living and working in Chicago, Blount found that the city began to affect his outlook on life. All right. Wow. Wasn't just wasn't just music that was happening in Chicago. Chicago at that time was kind of like the epicenter of black culture in the country. Um, there was a lot of uh different groups you had black muslims you had black hebrews you had all these kinds of like organizations converging in chicago and they would put out pamphlets they would put out books and uh also in chicago some of the buildings actually have a an ancient egyptian look and he 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 liked that you wow. know yeah now he would read books by uh george gm james a book yeah. called Stolen Legacy. And it's basically the, this was the first book that really uh, attempted to make the point that I think there's an accuracy to it where Greek philosophy had its roots in ancient Egypt. Okay. Yeah. And that a lot of things were kind of, you know, what we take from Greek philosophy really was started by ancient Egypt. And, uh, he concluded that many of the accomplishments of blacks uh, over the years were kind of suppressed by Europeans. Okay. Yes, there were. And uh, yeah, I think that's, there's definitely truth to that. So by 1952, Blount was, was leading the space trio with, uh, the space yeah, the space trio, trio. <laughs> right. 1952. That's very early, you know, yeah. With drummer Tommy Bugs Hunter and saxophonist Pat Patrick, two of the best musicians that he knew. And they performed often, and Sun Ra began to write a lot more advanced music by this point. Now, on October 20th, 52, Blount legally changed his name to La Sunny R. Ra. All right. And Sun Ra was, was the short version of that. And he claimed he was uncomfortable with the name Blount since it was really a slave name and not, you know, a black name. It was given to his family when they were slaves. Okay. Yeah. Even though he didn't experience slavery, but going back. So Pat Patrick at that point would marry and move to Florida with his wife. Sun Ra's friend, John Gilmore on tenor sax joined the group and Marshall Allen on alto sax soon joined up as well. Patrick would occasionally rejoin the group from time to time for the rest of his life. He would be in and out of the band. But Alan and Gidmore, Gilmore would be the most loyal of his people. Okay, um, Gilmore could have been a band leader in his own right, many have said. 
But he stayed with Sun Ra for 40 years until Sun Ra passed away. And then he wow. took over the orchestra. And he lived a few years, and then he would pass away. All right? So, you know, he devoted his whole life to Sun Ra. Now, Chicago tenor saxophone player Von Freeman also did a short stint with the band in the early 1950s. Uh, in Chicago, Sun Ra met Alton Abraham, okay, who was a teenage kid, but was very kind of like a kindred spirit with Sun Ra, even though Sun Ra was a lot older. Uh, he yeah. was very intelligent, okay, and he had good business sense. He was also interested in a lot of esoteric topics like Sun Ra was, and he kind of became like a business manager, like an unofficial business manager for the, for the group. Um, he was a huge proponent of this new orchestra that Sun Ra had, now called an orchestra. Okay, Sun Ra and his orchestra. Yes, there goes he, the name, the Ark. The, the Ark, right. And, you know, and it goes with what they, the way they dressed and looked and discussed and what they were into. Now, he, he was would... Was this guy gay? No. No, I, 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 I think... I don't believe so because probably that condition. Okay. Uh, I think he... His... I believe if I remember right, you know, his his outlook and philosophy, he was just not interested in sex. That's crazy. So, I, I yeah, I, I that was not his thing. I mean, maybe the medical condition he had had a lot to do with that. There might have been some pain involved. You know, that's not good, right? So, I don't know. Uh, as right. far, I don't believe he had. I don't believe he had any kids. You know, I don't All believe right. he was even. I don't believe he was even married. If anybody watching knows different, let me know. I I, I don't yeah. recall that. Um, now this kid would book performances. Uh, he also would suggest to Sun Ra uh, different people that would be good for the orchestra. He was always looking for, for, for good musicians to join. Um, so, yeah, now Ra and Abraham and others also formed a book club to kind of like trade ideas. And they actually printed up pamphlets and flyers and short little books about their philosophies. Uh, very rare if you could find these things. They, you know, I, there are people that do collect them. But they were out there, you know, especially in the Chicago area. Now, in the mid-50s, Sun Ra and Abraham formed an independent record label that was known as L. Saturn Records. Uh, sometimes there was different, different variations on that name on the records, but basically that's what it was, L. Saturn Records. Initially, it focused on a, uh, releasing 45s, singles, okay, by Sun Ra and any kind of like artists that were related to him in any way or you know, kind of in the same boat. Now, Saturn Records... He pretty much got his own independent record label. He got his own independent label, yeah, which was a, was a hard thing to do, okay, in those yeah. days. Uh, Saturn Records issued two full-length albums during the 1950s. He had Supersonic Jazz in 1957 and another album called Jazz and Silhouette in 1959. But it was producer Tom Wilson... Okay, who would later work with the Velvet Underground, okay, and and others uh, to really release the first Sun Ra album through his independent label called Transition Records. That was in 1957, prior to Supersonic Jazz, okay, and it was entitled just Jazz by Sun Ra. Um, Tom Wilson's a very interesting guy. There's a documentary that's coming out about him. It, it might be out already, but I think it, I don't think so. I think it's about to, uh, very interesting guy, uh, uh, you know, a black producer in an era when there weren't really any, okay. There were very few black producers, if really any worth talking about. Uh, he worked with a lot of people. He worked with Bob Dylan. He worked with the Velvet Underground and a lot of people, a lot of white artists also. So he, you know, it's very interesting that, I mean, of course, he produced the first Velvet Underground album, and you go like, well, that's like one of my favorite records of all time, you know? Yeah. So, you know, we should do a show on him. Maybe I'm going to find out what's going on I with that country, you know? Um, now, during the era of this time with Saturn Records, uh, 
Sun Ra recorded the first of a dozen singles as a band for hire. Okay, um, he would do he would work with doo-wop artists, R and B singers, um, and but it, the backing band was Sun Ra's band. So he was kind of like, you know, he's making money in all different ways. He had his own compositions, but then he would work with other people, and the orchestra would play straight up R and B. They could play anything. Okay. And he would he would work with different people just as background musicians. Yep. Uh, these were all reissued as a two CD set called The Singles, by uh, and it was released by Evidence Records. You can get that. In the late 1950s, Sun Ra and his band began to start wearing outlandish Egyptian looking yeah. outfits okay uh also kind of like sci-fi themed kind of sets and you know they they were discussing space and the album covers look futuristic okay um it really kind of like it, it was really a, an expression of sun Ra, really just what he was okay and the space age basically they they provided a lot of recognizable uniforms i mean everybody who saw them knew who they were and uh, he even looked at it as comic relief in a way. Okay. <laughs> it was comic relief. Yeah. yeah, because he said that a lot of, of avant-garde, which is what he was, he was really more than just jazz. It was really just out there avant-garde art, artistry. Yeah. Okay? A, lot, a lot of people like that take themselves very seriously, and he just was like not like that, you know? So he, he considered, well, you can laugh, laugh at us too if you want, basically. I'm definitely worried about because it's <laughs> Yeah, but Sun Ra and the orchestra then would move to New York City in the fall of 1961. Uh, basically, they started living communally to save money. And uh, they, and it kind of like, like I said before, it enabled them to all work together at any time of day. If he had something he wanted to rehearse, he could do it at one o'clock in the morning because the band was all there anyway, or most of the band. Okay, most of the band, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, it was during this time in New York that they recorded the album "The Futuristic Sounds of Sun Ra." All right, in March of 1966, the orchestra secured a regular Monday night gig at Slug Saloon, which was a uh, which was a little jazz club at 242 East 3rd Street in the village, East Village. Wow. And it was between B and C, okay? Wow. Now, you know, I was curious because I said, well, you know, I know the area very well. What's what's over there now? You know what that is now? What? It's a Dominican bakery called Rossi's Bakery. <laughs> wow. So no relation to you, Rob Rossi. They actually spell it with a Y at the end instead of an I. I, know, I order food from there. The food is good. Is it really? Okay. Okay. The Spanish food there is very good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was a, a very – what's that? It's a, it's a Dominican bakery. Yeah, 242 East 3rd Street. That's funny. Slug. It used, it used to be Slug Saloon. Now, it was a – you know, it was a kind of run down. I mean, the area was, was run down at the time. Crime, oh, yeah. crime was increasing. Eventually, through the seventies, they would have a lot of problems. That a lot of drug dealers and stuff like that would be in the yeah. club. But it was uh, it was a place where you know a lot of people would would hang out. Okay, uh, Miles Davis would go there. Okay, there'd be you know a lot of people hanging out. Um, right, right. Now, also the the burgeoning beat generation at that time in nineteen. 66 okay and the hippie generation the psychedelic which would follow immediately after them were all kind of like into sun Ra. they were they were they were checking this checking his stuff out and they were liking it um it was peak time really for sun Ra, and also for slug saloon which was doing very well uh, yeah. a lot of times critics would show up jazz jazz critics or even rock critics soon and would kind of pick up on what they were doing. And they had a residency there, all right? So if you could picture this giant orchestra with all these guys dressed up as 
you know, members of ancient Egypt, okay, walking down Third Street between B and C. That had to be a sight, okay? That had to be a sight. There's also a normal day in the East Village, too. Oh, it's just another, yeah, true, just another normal day, exactly. Uh, But a lot of people came down, fellow jazz musicians, like I said, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie was a fan. Uh, Thelonious Monk was a fan, oh, and Monk. and one time somebody asked Thelonious Monk, basically kind of, you know, the guy started out by making fun of Sun Ra, saying like, you know, he's way too far out. But Thelonious said to him, "Yeah, but that, but that stuff swings." So musically, it was amazing, even though it was way out there, the it way it looked. Yeah. Now, in 66, Sun Ra with members of the orchestra and Al Cooper's Blues Project, okay, recorded an album together called Batman and Robin under a different name, okay? They used a pseudonym called The Sensational Guitars of Dan and Dale. And the album, cons- the album consisted of several instrumental versions of the Batman theme, different takes on it. And they also kind of mixed in like classical music that was in the public domain in there. Okay. Yeah, so, so that was the, was that the classic? Yeah. 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 But they had like, you know, different versions of it, jazzy kind of versions of it. Uh, there's also an uncredited female vocalist that sings what is called the Robin's theme. So maybe there was no Robin's theme. So it's like, it's, Kind of like something they made up, I guess, right? Robin. Probably. Yeah. Now, despite their planned management of money, trying to save money in New York, it was getting too expensive there. And the band ended up moving to Philadelphia after their New York City apartment that they were renting. The whole building went for sa- went up for sale. So they, they had to get out. All right. And they ended up going down to Philly in 1968. Uh, into what was called then the Germantown section of Philadelphia. Uh, Sutra moved into a house on Morton Street that became the orchestra's home base, basically. Okay, it was it was where they would continue until his death in the early 90s. Um, apart from maybe some complaints about noise with the band, he was very well liked in the neighborhood uh, the neighbors respected him because he was very friendly. The, the the band members were friendly with the neighbors. They also did not do drugs. It was it was something that they were wow. against. Okay, uh, Sun Ra, I don't believe uh, would drink. Though some of the other guys did, but they kept it to a minimum. They just never got crazy. They were pretty sober guys. You know, Man, uh, get up? That's no, it looks like you know, not not too much, it seems okay, and definitely not at gigs. That was always a point. Um, saxophonist Danny Ray Thompson would also own a small convenience store, he owned and ran it in the neighborhood there. So he would, he was, you know, helping people and making things good for the neighborhood through that way. Yeah, the, the Pharaoh's Den, right? It was called the Pharaoh's Den, yeah. Yeah, and when lightning struck one time at this tree across the street from their house, Sunra took it as a good omen. So James Jackson, who was part of the orchestra, he he took wood from that tree, and he caught he he made a drum out of it, and it was called the Cosmic Infinity Drum, and they would use that drum, you know, for a long time, uh, maybe to this day. I'm not sure. Okay, but they they would also, even though they were living in Philly, they still continued with their residency at Slug Saloon. Okay, so what they used to do is ninety minute drive, once a minute week. No, they didn't even drive; they took the fucking train. Oh, yeah, they 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 took Amtrak. Okay, Um, I don't know if it was called Amtrak then; might not have been. But there was a train, uh, you know, between New York and Philly, be there within two hours. And uh, if they had any other engagements in the New York City area, they did the same thing. They, did, they didn't drive. They took the train. Now, Sun Ra became a fixture in Philadelphia. Uh, he would often appear at WXPN radio, and he would also give lectures to community groups, or he would visit the city libraries, talk to kids, that kind of stuff. He played 
the orchestra would play free Saturday shows at parks in Germantown near their home. Um, some of the mid 1970s Philadelphia clubs that they played in, uh, what they would do to sell records is they would have a guy set up behind in the back of the club, just selling records in a plain white sleeve of, of prior live shows that they had recorded. So he was in a sense, like, you know, bootlegging himself. Yeah. You know, there's Sun Ra stuff that the, the, the amount of bootlegs over the years is, is unbelievable. It's like he's got way more bootlegs than he does regular releases. So in late 68, Sun Ra and the orchestra made their first tour of the West Coast. First time they ever been out there. And reactions were mixed. Now, you might think, oh, the whole country was like the hippie generation. That wasn't really true. Yeah. Okay. On the East Coast, you had a different, different type of mentality. Uh, some of the East Coast, you know, what would be known as hippies wouldn't have gotten along with the West Coast ones, all right? For instance, like the Velvet Underground, even though they were never hippies, but they hated yeah. playing the West Coast because they hated those hippies. <laughs> so it was kind of a similar thing with Sun Rob. Uh, not that he hated the hippies, but they didn't know what to make of him, okay, and the orchestra. They were used to, like, these long... Grateful Dead jams and stuff like that. And he came out with this like insane free jazz slash, you know, visual experience with lights and costumes. And, you know, it was just Everything. like they didn't know what to make of it. I mean, it's just like the hippies in, in L.A. didn't know what to make of Alice Cooper at the same time. Alice Cooper would play. And if if he played, he the club would empty out. <laughs> So, you know, it was a similar thing with Sun Ra. Uh, yeah. I, believe, I believe Alice Cooper cites Sun Ra as an influence, too, I believe. Okay. This guy so, influenced a lot of people. Man. Yeah, yeah. Now, by this time, the orchestra had 20 to 30 musicians at times. And he had dancers. He had singers, more than one. Uh, wow. One particular singer that would be with him for a long time would be June Tyson, a very interesting lady. Um, She's featured in the, uh, you could see her in the Spaces, the Place movie and documentary about Sun Ra that came out, God, that it came out about 1980, that documentary, something like that. Wow. But the movie, the movie Spaces, the Place is, is uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'll get into it in a little, in a little bit, but it was a movie that came out in the early 70s based on his album, The Spaces, the Place, and he stars in it with people in the orchestra. It's a crazy movie. But, uh, now, John Burks of Rolling Stone magazine wrote this positive review of a gig at San Jose State College. Uh, Sun Ra was then, it was considered a great article, so they put Sun Ra on the cover of Rolling Stone, okay? And that was April 19th, 1969. And his face became known to millions at that point, obviously. Yeah. Okay. You're on Rolling Stone, you're on the that was a big thing back then, yeah. Now, during this tour, um, Damon Choice, who was an art student at San Jose, joined the orchestra. So it was after the performance there that he got a student from the from the college to actually be part of the band. Uh, he played what was called uh, vibraphone. Okay, in 1970, starting in France and Germany and the UK, Sun Ra would begin to tour internationally. All right. He these are you know Europe was a place that until the end of his life the, the the orchestra would be very popular and he would play there and be able to make money. Uh now saxophonist Danny Ray Thompson became the tour and business manager at this time and he specialized in what he called no bullshit COD. Okay, which basically meant pay me before the show, okay? And pay me before <laughs> Pay me before I deliver any records to you. Okay. So, you know, make sure he made sure they got paid because in those days people would get ripped off big time. So they knew what to do with that. Yeah. I mean, in, in rock and roll, it happened too. It's notorious. Uh, everybody from Chuck Berry to Jimi Hendrix got ripped off. You know, 
Oh, you know, the show will be over. Oh, I'm not paying you. Crazy. It's crazy how many times that happens to so many big stars, too. I mean, Chuck Berry used to carry a a fucking gun. For that reason alone, he'd stick it in your face if you didn't pay him. There were wrestling promoters that done that. They got all the fucking box office hostage. Right, right. Now, in early 71, Sun Ra traveled to Egypt for the first time with the orchestra. And he would return again in 1983 and 1984 when he recorded with Egyptian drummer Salah Ragab. Um, The recordings made in Egypt were released as Live in Egypt, uh, something called Nidhamu, Sun Ra meets Salah Ragab, Egypt Strut, and one was called Horizon. These were all live albums from Egypt. In, wow. in 1972, San Francisco public TV station KQED producer, his name was John Coney, uh, and producer Jim Newman, and also screenwriter Joshua Smith, worked with Sun Ra to produce the 85-minute feature film entitled Space is the Place. Space is the Place. Right, and that was with the orchestra and... Some actors of the, you know, yeah. B, B actors at the time. Okay. Uh, it was filmed around Oakland and San Francisco. Um, and I got to tell you, <laughs> you can see it for free on YouTube. It's like I said, it's about 85 minutes long, 80 minutes long, something like that. And it's in the black exploitation genre in a lot of ways, but it's the most out there black exploitation movie you ever seen all right basically <laughs> Sun, the, the premise the premise is that Sun Ra is uh you know a well-known jazz musician who just traveled to saturn and is on his way back in a spaceship okay and he comes out and he hasn't been seen for a while so he's coming back you see him you know g- traveling through space in this like weird looking spaceship it looks like it has two eyeballs on it okay and then <laughs> and then he, you know he, he flies into the atmosphere and it's funny because there's like a you know it's like a tv announcer going oh i think i see sunron now here he is you know it's like this spaceship is landing okay and uh he comes out and he's he's dressed like a pharaoh he's got people holding his cape up behind him and he's just walking with all these guys. He's got like a headdress thing that's like this tall on his head. Okay. And, you know, through then then it, it goes to a part where he's like in a club. It's like a it's like a kind of tough like jazz club with some bad people in there. And he yeah. it's him playing the piano, but he's not dressed up. He's dressed like a normal dude. Okay. But at one point, like he starts having like these powers that he could like he makes people fucking disappear and shit. It's, it's nuts, okay? And people start, like, the place starts blowing up and there's, like, all this destruction, right? And then uh, what I love that I got to say, at the, at the end of the movie, he's going to take people back with him in the spaceship and he's going to leave, okay? And one guy, <laughs> he says, he says, I'm only going to take, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's all black people that he's taking back. And his one guy, he goes, I'm only, you're not enough black. I'm going to take only the black part of you. Okay. (laughs) Right. And so you see that guy kind of go into the spaceship, but it's like the black part of him. And then he's left behind. He looks the same, but now he sounds like a white guy. (laughs) Oh, my God. And he he gets like a white girlfriend. And like, you know, it's like, oh, it's funny, man. (laughs) But. Uh, you know, obviously, obviously the movie didn't make any money, but you know, it was, it was, it was worth it. Now space is the place is probably, you know, the soundtrack to that is the most well-known thing that he ever did. Okay. As far as any kind of, any kind of commercialness, you know, now in 1975, there was a show in Cleveland that, uh, Devo would open for. Okay. And in very early form of Devo. Um, and in May 20th, 1978, Sun Ra was actually on Saturday Night Live. 
Wow. So he was through the 70s. Right. He was he was through the 70s. He was still popular Um, in New York City in the fall of 79. Sunrise and the orchestra played as the house band at what used to be called the Squat Theater on 23rd Street. Uh, 23rd, right between 7th and 8th, kind of like uh, you know what movie the, the movie theater is. Yeah, yeah. there was a, that that before that was there. There was smaller, lower buildings, I think, and it was it was one of those one of those there. Uh, it was something called the Hungarian Theater Troupe. They used to play there all the time at the squat theater, very avant-garde kind of stuff. And whenever the, the troupe was away, they would go to Europe and play. They would have they would book other things, and and Sun Ra was one that they booked regularly there at that time. Uh, Debbie Harry was known to come down. She lives right over there, anyway. Um, John Cale, who used to be in the Velvet Underground, was was very involved with coming down to see that. Nico. Also part of the first Velvet Underground album. She was there a lot. Lots of like avant-garde pop artists. Andy Warhol was interested. Stuff like that. Uh, and again, you know, you, you mentioned we were talking before if they got lumped up. I mean, they, they were known to be very disciplined. And even at these later gigs in their career, they still didn't really drink. Sun Ra would drink club soda at the shows. The band might have a drink, but not when they played like yeah. that so um at this point when he was directing the band while they played he also played three different sets of synthesizers at the same time okay so he was he would stand in front of the band and direct them and he would have in a circle kind of like three three keyboards around him you could see shows online with this how he did it amazing to see somebody play Three sets of keyboards at the same time. That's crazy, um, man. Yeah, yeah. Now, the orchestra would continue through the 80s and into the 90s. And unfortunately, Sun Ra had a stroke in 1990. And it didn't really stop him. It slowed him down. But it, it kept – he would keep composing new things. He would perform. But uh, at this point – he was slowing down a little bit and bands like at the same time, like Sonic youth were, were praising them. And at one point they opened for a couple of gigs for Sonic youth. Thurston Moore arranged wow. with, with, with uh, Sunrock. Uh, amazing. Yeah. But it, you know, even though he had the stroke in 90, he had to slow down because of illness. Uh, and he would eventually pass away in uh, 1992 in Birmingham, uh, he moved back for his family to kind of take care of him. All right. And his oldest sister and a cousin took care of him for a short time uh, until unfortunately he passed away in January of, of 1993. Uh, he died in the hospital from a variety of things. He still had complications from the stroke. He had congestive heart failure, respiratory failure. He had more strokes actually, uh, bunch of other medical issues um i should say that was in january of 93 he went to the hospital he passed away may 30th 1993 okay yeah. so he, 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 the, last, the last five months of his life were were pretty tough you know he was very sick um he's buried at what's called elmwood cemetery in birmingham and the headstone is very simple it just says herman blount also known as la sunny aura very simple very now John wow. Gilmore, John Gilmore in the band would take over the orchestra until he passed away from emphysema in 1995. Wow! Um, yeah, just a few years later, Marshall Allen then took over the orchestra and he runs it to this day. Uh, in 1999, there was an album led by Allen called "Song for the Sun." Okay, that was recorded. And in the summer of 2004, the orchestra became the first American jazz band to play tuva. Tuva is a place in southern Siberia. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And they played something uh, about five sets for something called the Ustu Hurry Festival, jazz festival they have there. Now, as of October 2021, the orchestra still continues to tour and perform periodically. 
they just played um, Australia for the first time in 2011. And most recently, they played the BRIC Jazz Fest in downtown Brooklyn. And that was this past uh, October. So wow. they're still around. They're, they're still around. Um, I have to say, I've never seen them. And, you know, I'd like to. Uh, but, I mean, it would have been nice to have seen them with Sunrod. But, you know, I'd like to. But with all this COVID shit, you know, I'm just not getting out too much to too many shows, it seems. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And it's crazy. But wow, what a what a life, what a history. What a history, right? I mean, I just I when I I, I knew he had a great history, but check this out. For three nights in uh July 14, 15, and 16 on October twenty second, twenty twenty two, they play and perform at the Jazz Festival in downtown Brooklyn. Right, right. That was just like I said, that was just, you know, two months ago. Not even. Yeah, wow. And they're playing Carnegie Hall this month in February. So they're still around, man. They 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 get on these bills, you know. People just just like them, you know. They're famous. They're very famous. Yep. So that's all I got for you today, wow. What a story, man! What a way to start Black History, man. You know. <laughs> yeah. Another yeah. legendary career. The guy was a prodigy, a genius. He could play instrument. He could create music. He could write music. Yeah, he goes to listen to music and then put it down on paper. Yeah, I mean, I've I've gotten more interested in 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 some of that free jazz stuff, um, especially because of its influence on a lot of bands that I like. You know, a lot of people yeah. don't realize that like the MC Five is influenced by jazz. Okay, yeah. a lot of people don't realize the Stooges are influenced by jazz. But yeah, if you if you listen to their arrangements as bands there's a there's a free jazz element in a lot of their songs i mean even like uh uh on the funhouse album by the stooges you know steve mckay playing sax on that song la blues at the end which is just a jam it's not even there's no lyrics it's just wow. a jam total free free jazz kind of thing all right, Mike. So thank you for another great episode of The Rock Show. This is episode 149. Right. Um, and the next episode is the historic 150 show where we're going to talk about Miles Davis and all that other good stuff. Miles there. Davis, bitches brew. Bitches brew. Yeah, bitches brew. So people, remember, don't get drunk. Get lumped up. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Get lumped up on the rock show.